0: If we were in a different circumstances, that song would have lasted 37 minutes. <laughs> and it would have been amazing. Amen. amen. But being an intentionally multi-ethnic church means we've got to pull back a little bit, and we've got to push forward a little bit. So, amen. <laughs> amen. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, if you will. As you turn there, I was, uh, I was having an occasion to watch baseball this week. Um, I don't actually... yeah really excited about that. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, I had a chance to watch baseball this week, and um, I don't actually watch sports in general, uh, but we had some, some brothers over to the house who were watching baseball, and so I watch. And of course, I have the most, world's most cliche baseball story. Um, most Like many of you, I played baseball as a kid, but like many of you, I didn't play for long. Um, because although I loved the uniforms, I loved the athleticism, I loved my coach even, I loved the camaraderie of the people on the team, it only took one time getting hit by a ball that I realized baseball was not God's will for my life. <laughs> and I wasn't as mad about getting hit by the ball as, the, as, the, as my options after I got hit. I was supposed to just walk on back to this dugout. I feel like I should, me and him should have a conversation. I feel like you hit me with the ball, I feel like something needs to be done. Justice needs to be served, amen? (laughs) Apparently that's not allowed, and I get kicked out of games for that stuff. And so praise God for salvation. (laughs) But for me, as much as I loved all the things about baseball, I didn't love baseball. And so it just took one thing to take me out of the game. It just took me one thing to realize, man, like, I probably crossed the line. And I realized I don't really love this like I thought I loved it. And that is at the heart of today's passage. Read silently along with me as I read aloud Mark chapter 14, verses. We're going to read all the way from uh, verses 1 through 11. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. It was two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. Why was he He was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came, came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head, but some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You will always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So they started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. That is the word of the Lord. So the question before us this morning is, what do you do when Jesus crosses the line? What do you do when Jesus crosses the line for that That baseball hitting me in my left shoulder was crossing the line for me, and I quit baseball. But what do you do when you feel like Jesus crossed the line? That's the question at the heart of today's passage. We'll get there in just a second, but let me set up how these 11 verses are structured. Mark does this a lot. Pastor Jake mentions this several times throughout his his last several weeks' preaching, where Mark kind of does some literary devices where he prepares a a sermon in the middle— and then he puts on either end, he brackets opposite and extreme examples, so that we can see the point in the middle. So you'll see an introduction, a message, and then another introduction that relates to the first one. And so if you look at the center of the story, you see Mary anointing Jesus. But how did chapter 14 start? It was started with the chief priests and scribes looking for a way to kill Jesus, and this passage within with Judas looking for a way to help them kill Jesus. So you have betrayal starting, you have betrayal ending, and right in the middle, you have Mary. Now, Mary is, a, is an interesting person in the, in the Gospels. Mary is mentioned three times in the Gospels. And every time that she is mentioned, she is at the feet of Jesus. Some of you may know the story of Mary and Martha. Poor Martha working, Mary sitting there being lazy, right? Or worshiping at the feet of the great teacher, the great Messiah, And then again, you see Mary at the feet of Jesus when Lazarus died. Lazarus was her brother. And she falls down to Jesus' feet saying, Lord, if you were only there, my brother would not have died. And she weeps at the feet of Jesus. And in this passage, you see her anointing Jesus. In John 12, we see that he actually anointed even Jesus' feet in a posture of worship and submission. And we see that. As a side note, by the way, once again, this is Mark making much of women in the Gospels, right? So Mark mentions women more than any other gospel. Fifteen women are mentioned 22 different times. Almost all of those are positive examples of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And so Mary, one of these women, has that posture of worship, but that story is in the middle of betrayal from the outside and betrayal from the middle. So Judas gets kind of an assumed bad rap. He, he has a bad rap because he's a bad person, did bad things. But why did, Jesus, why did Judas betray Jesus? Was it because he hated Jesus? At this point, he'd been following him for about three years, day in and day out, sleeping where he slept, eating what he ate, going out in pairs to preach the gospel. At this point, he had been, like many other disciples, model followers of Jesus, literally giving up everything to go where Jesus would go. But why did Jesus finally betray Jesus? Look closely at what happened verse 3, while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. Some of you may be thinking of another example of a woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair. That is another example. That is another story. So this is the second time now that someone with an expensive jar of perfume had anointed Jesus. The first one was an act of repentance for my sins are forgiven. This one is looking forward to Jesus as the Messiah. I'm going to anoint your body for or burial while you were alive. But she broke the jar and poured it on his head. Why is that important? Nard, we don't really know what that is, and 300 denarii, we don't really have a concept for that. That's about a year's worth of salary. So think about your yearly salary, the average salary for a worker, and she has a bottle of nard, which is kind of an Indian root kind of fragrance. She has that It's worth about a year's worth of salary. So this is probably a family heirloom, maybe a dowry. This is probably the most valuable thing she has in her possession by far. And she takes some of it and dips it on Jesus' head. No. She pours some of it and keeps the rest because, you know, we got to live, we got to eat. No, she broke the jar, making the jar unusable again because she wanted to spend it all on Jesus. Now, Judas and the disciples are watching this, and this is, as we saw in verse 1, the season of the Passover. And during the Passover, there were many things happening. It was one of the big three festivals where the entire nation, no matter where you were located, you descended upon Jerusalem. So part of the reason why the scribes didn't want to cause a riot is because when you have several thousand Jews descending upon one city, the Romans got a little nervous. So guards were increased, security was tightened, and so the Jews knew that they were on a very short leash during this season. And so they wanted to be cunning, but during the Passover season, during the evenings was a time of giving alms to the poor. And so they would give food and money and clothing to the poor pretty much every evening during the Passover season. And here this woman comes in with a year's worth salary that could have fed tens of thousands of people, that could have clothed even more, she breaks this alabaster jar and wastes it on Jesus. Now, Judas stands out, but as you can see in the passage, that all the disciples, verse 4, but some were expressing indignation to one another. So all of the disciples felt some type of way about all this money being wasted on Jesus. How many people could have been fed by that that jar, Jesus? How many people could have been clothed by that jar, Jesus? How much good could have been done if it wasn't wasted on your feet? And Judas, being the one who seems to be the most indignant, said, that's enough. He let it go the first time. Mary Magdalene, she said, those who have sinned much have been forgiven much. So he let it go the first time that someone poured out an expensive on Jesus' feet. But this was enough. Right is right, Jesus. Wrong is wrong. He leaves and takes that moment to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the same amount of silver that a slave was bought and sold for. Why? Did you just think he was doing the right thing, y'all? Did you just think he was doing the just thing by turning Jesus over? Did Jesus think he was doing the righteous thing? And look how Jesus responds. Imagine one of us saying this, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? In verse six, she has done a noble thing. You're going to always have poor people around, but me, I'm here for a limited time only. Like this is what Jesus says in response to their probably even justified indignation that money was wasted. He said, the poor can always be here. You can help them anytime, but me, I'm only here now. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for the burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is my point, y'all. Jesus will never contradict his word, but he will oftentimes contradict our understanding of it. How many passages of Scripture could could Judas quote to Jesus that say that was wrong? Numerous passages in the Old Testament talk about caring for the poor, living sacrificially, giving up your possessions to serve those and love those. Numerous passages of Scripture that Judas could have thrown at Jesus. But here's the thing about following Jesus, y'all. When you're following Jesus, you're not following what Jesus that You're not following the Jesus that you think should be the Jesus that you want to follow. You're following the Jesus of the Bible. And sometimes he will call you to do hard things. He will call you to give up things that you think are good things. But if you are following Jesus, then it will be worth it. I think of John chapter 6. Jesus was was teaching. Um, and He began to teach about power of the Holy Spirit. He means that no man can be born again unless the Father has given him to me. And many people were turned away by that statement. And as he was teaching in public, many disciples turned away and left. And then he turned to the 12 and said, will you leave too? And Peter, every once in a while, Peter got it right, y'all. He said, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you hear that in his voice? I don't understand either, Jesus. I don't get it either, Jesus. I may even disagree, Jesus, but where else could we go but follow you? Where else could we find rest for our souls and satisfaction for our spirits? Where else could we go, Jesus? And that's the sign of a true disciple not always understanding but always obeying. Not always agreeing but always obeying. So what do you do when Jesus crosses the line? He calls you to give up more time than you're comfortable with. He calls you to raise your children in a different way than you were raised with. He calls you to spend your money in a different way than you are comfortable with. He calls you to date someone that you think that you should not date. He calls you to end relationships that you think are otherwise good. What do you do in those moments where Jesus calls you to sacrifice the thing that you feel is most needed for your own happiness? Here's the thing. I, I did work with college ministry and young adult ministry for a long time. And one of the big questions that you always get is about you know, future career, spouse, those kind of future-looking questions. And here's what I've realized over a short time of doing that for maybe like seven or eight years is it, you can make any decision sound like a good one. You can make any decision sound like a good, godly, righteous decision. And here's how I always can tell. So brothers, I'm going to help you out. young man will come up to me and says, man, I think I found the one. I says, all right. Probably not, but continue, <laughs> right? <laughs> Odds are. And it, they always thought, kind of start the conversation the same way. Oh, man, she is just so godly. Her, me and her, just, she has sanctified me so much. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because you're telling me the things you think I want to hear. You're sprinkling Jesus on, she's cute, and she's funny, and she thinks I'm funny. Like, just say that. But no, I've got to get you, the Christian leader in this group, I've got to get you to sign off on this, so let me present this information in such a way that gives you the authority to say, yes, go forth and marry. I think I should quit my job. Why, man? I just, just, I think I have more time to serve the church. Oh, (laughs) okay. Okay. You ain't killing it right now with what the time that you got, but okay. <laughs> Man, if I could just pay down this debt, then I can give. A little bit quieter on that one. If I could just get through this season of life, then I can share the gospel. I'm just, I'm just so overwhelmed with life right now. And we have good, godly reasons for disobeying the God of the Bible. And then, at times, Jesus has the audacity to push us over the line. To ask us to do the thing that we won't do. To ask us to do the thing that we are struggling to do. And our response to that in that moment shows where our heart is. Because is Judas' is Judas's real response what the poor could have been, how the poor could have been benefited? No. This is selfish. John chapter 12 makes this a little bit clearer. John chapter, four, John chapter 12 telling the exact same story. In verse 4 it says, Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, so already in his heart he says, that's enough, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this, verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it and what was put in it. So the reality is what sounded like justice, what sounded like a righteous indignation to care for the poor, which is a biblical command, was really selfishness disguised. And if we're honest, we've all been there, y'all. We have all been there. We've asked for a good thing for the wrong reasons. We've asked for a bad thing and make it sound like a good thing. And if we use enough Christian language, no one can tell the difference. We have enough Bible verses buttressing our point. No one can tell the difference. But God will never contradict the word, but he will contradict your understanding of the word. God gave Abraham a son named Isaac, the promised son through whom the the, the promise would be fulfilled. And one day God told Abraham to kill Isaac. Imagine that conversation in a small group. Hey, man, you know that kid we just had? I think God wants me to kill him. All the parents said, yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah, it is in the Bible, right? (laughs) It's an option. Imagine how we, God's people, would respond to a man saying that. Or one of the prophets. I think God's going to call me to walk around without food, to go naked, to eat food cooked over a dung pile. All the things that Isaiah and Ezekiel and other prophets did to make a point. Imagine if someone came to you and said, man, I think God is calling me to marry a prostitute. It's a whole book of the Bible devoted to that. True story. Imagine if God called you to send your kids to public school, even though you can afford private. Imagine the opposite. God told you to send your kids to private school, even though you're passionate about sending them to public. Imagine if God really demanded to be God in your life. How would you respond? And not using the Christian hallmark version of conversation that says, well, God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? Maybe. But eternal happiness is going to look real good compared to momentary suffering. Amen. Whatever we give up in this life, the word is clear that whatever we give up in this life, that in this life and in the one to come, we will receive payback from God because God will owe no man. God will owe no woman. And so the call is to not feel like Jesus crosses the line, but the call is to be sold out, y'all. I, I wrestled with using that first because that's kind of an old school sold out, like the sold out tour, Like that used to be a thing back in the day. People don't really use that anymore. Like we have radical now and on fire and blaze and all these cool words. Here's why I think sold out's an appropriate term here. Because when you go to a store and something is sold out, what does that mean? It's gone. they got nothing left. They've given it all away. They've sold it all. They've traded all of their stuff away. And I think that's the call here, y'all. I think that's why Mary did what she did. That's why she didn't bat an eye to give up her most valuable possession to have a momentary offering of worship to Jesus. Because in Mary's heart already, she had already given it to Jesus. That alabaster jar, even though it had been sitting on her dresser for years, was already Jesus' property. That gift of nard was already Jesus' property. That time and money in the bank account is already Jesus' property. Those children are already Jesus' property. That spouse, that career, it's already his. And so it doesn't seem as crazy when we give it away. And so when she poured that nard over Jesus' body, anointing his feet, there was indignation because the disciples still thought incorrectly about who Jesus was and who he came to be. We'll get late to that in the next several passages. They still didn't get who Jesus really was. And for us, I think some of that is on us as well. The commentator in this passage says that the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. And let me be honest, your life will be moderately better if you have religion in moderation. If you have a relationship in Jesus in moderation, things will go pretty well for you. We'll call persecution they're not letting us pray anymore. We'll call persecution, you know, not being able to put our Bible on our desk, and we'll feel kind of this moderate reality because it's religion in moderation. But what would it look like for just a moment if we took the limits off of our obedience to God? What would it look like if we didn't just pour it out, but we broke the bottle? No going back. Jesus, this is for you. What would your life look like? What would your family life look like? What would your neighborhood look like? What would this church look like if we sold out to Jesus? Matthew seven twenty says this. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will pronounce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Let me unpack this for a second. Judas had been following Jesus for three years. He was one of the 12. We're not talking about a pagan. We're not talking about an adversary. We're talking about someone who had heard Jesus speaking and teaching, raising the dead, doing miracles, feeding 5,000, feeding 3,000. Like he had seen the power of God over and over and over again. But there was one day where Jesus crossed the line. And it showed that he had never actually been following him all along. The hard part, y'all is we can do this church thing for a long time without ever being confronted with whether we are following Jesus or not. Most churches, and I'm not saying this despairingly, these are our brothers and sisters, and this is something I fall victim to as well, most churches will be satisfied with you being good church members and not good Christians. Write a check, serve on a ministry, show up early, invite somebody else. You do that, and you'll fly under the radar for a long time. And you may never have a moment where Jesus confronts the idolatry of our hearts, where Jesus confronts the moderate pace of our discipleship, and we don't even really know if we're following him or not. So, what's the question? What's the answer? How do we know that our discipleship and our following Jesus is real? We don't live in a persecuted country. We can meet here in public on a Sunday morning without fear of reprisal. We can pray and serve and love and give, and as long as we don't go too far with it, the world will kind of celebrate and get out of our way. So how do we know? It doesn't come from external persecution, y'all. It comes from an internal commitment. Let me give you the answer in Matthew 11. 28 verses through 30. Jesus speaking, says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what a yoke is? Right? It's not, it's not meant to be this, it kind of has a negative connotation, like I'm, I'm like somehow bonded, but a yoke is actually a good thing. It takes the strength and power of one animal, combines it with another animal so they can do more work than they could do alone. So a yoke is kind of the thing that connects cattle together as they're plowing a field, connect horses together as they're pulling a carriage. It's the thing that turns the effort of one into the effort of two. So when Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, what is he saying? He's saying you can't get there by yourself. You don't have the energy, the power, the discipline. You are not good enough to fix the brokenness that you know is in your heart. You can never be nice enough to get your way to God. You can't sacrifice and serve on a ministry long enough. You can't tithe big enough. You can't do it on your own. But if you connect to me as the vine connects to the branches, as the branches connect to the tree, as the trees connect to the roots, if you connect to me, I'll take you where you need to go. That's why his yoke is easy and my burden is light. I had the imagery of kind of like, you know, like the two big oxen pulling a cart. Well, imagine if one huge oxen was like connected to like a baby oxen, like the feet aren't even on the ground, just kind of like paddling in midair. Like that's us. That's us. Own our own efforts by our own merit. We can't do anything good. But we connect, to the, we connect to Jesus and his work through the power of the Spirit. All of a sudden, we get access to all the riches of God's person and presence. That comes with a trade-off now, doesn't it, church? When you are yoked to another, you can't decide where you're going to go on your own. You can't decide how fast or how slow you can go on your own. You can't decide which direction you're going to go on your own. To access the benefits of following Christ, you've actually got to follow Christ. And there are great and glorious benefits to following Jesus, a peace that knows, no under, that knows no limits, a love that defies the imagination, a family which is eternal and ever-present. But it comes with following Jesus. It comes with being yoked to Jesus. It comes from burning the bridges, breaking the bottle, and pouring it all out, saying, Jesus, is yours anyway. So here's the call. How do we live a sold-out life? It means going where Jesus goes and trusting his strength to get there. Both are required. You've got to go where Jesus is calling you to go, but you've also got to know that you can't get there by yourself. You need the finished work of Jesus. You need the power of the Spirit. You need the community of faith. But when you tap into that, You can live a life wholly devoted to Jesus, and I promise you it's better. I promise you it's better. Before I close, let me say this briefly. There are some in this room who don't know Jesus. And maybe like Judas, they have been following Jesus on the surface. They've been signing up for things. They've been going places. They've been doing all the right things. But as you've been hearing this word about following Jesus and relying on his power, maybe you feel a tinge of conviction, a tinge of, like, I I don't know if that's true about me. Religion in moderation is no religion at all. Jesus will have all or we will have none. And I'm not saying empty out your bank accounts. I'm saying if the Lord tells you to, empty out your bank accounts. I'm not saying serve more than you're doing. I'm saying if God tells you to, do that because it's already his. And so maybe you've mastered the external service, but you don't really feel that power and you don't really feel that presence because you really don't have a relationship with Jesus. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Don't leave this place without having a conversation. We're going to end our service in just a moment. We're going to sing a song of just responding to God's word. And during that time, there's going to be people right there at that next step table that want to have a conversation with you, that want to pray with you, that want to pray for you. I'm not asking you to make a decision today. I'm asking you to take a step today to say, God, do I really have a relationship with you, or am I just serving you as the butler? Am I really a son or a daughter, and do I feel that? Do I live in that, or... Am I just Judas buying time until Jesus asks too much and I walk away? For the believers in the room know that God's power and God's presence come together as a package deal, y'all. Experiencing his presence through small things, by getting in the word every morning for a few minutes, by spending time with believers who are encouraging your faith, that is how your faith grows. It's not always the the big act of sacrifice or the big act of devotion. Usually it's the small daily acts of devotion that strengthen your resolve to follow Jesus and to love him more today. That's what he's calling you today is to live a sold-out life by small moments of obedience every single day so that when the big test comes, you're ready. David didn't start with Goliath. He started with the lion and the bear. He started with worship in a field. And that's what prepared him to face Goliath. And so you will face Goliath. You will face the big test. Jesus will cross the line in your life. And how you respond will be a direct result of all the things and means of grace that you've been tapping into before that day.